I hope you'll open a Bible again to Matthew 22, which we read earlier, the parable of the wedding feast, as we look at this together. Last November, uh, the White House hosted its first state dinner of that administration, and there were more than 300 guests, cabinet members, uh, dignitaries, Hollywood celebrities. Uh, The event was given primarily to honor the Prime Minister from India, but what it became noted for in the days that followed was that there was a, uh, a couple, a married couple, who crashed the party and had their pictures made with uh, not only the president but many others, and the Secret Service especially came under great scrutiny in the days that followed for what had happened because they were uninvited guests uh, among the many others. What is the greatest invitation you have ever received as far as to an event? I mean, don't, don't answer out loud, please, but just think of perhaps what, what was the uh, most cherished invitation you've ever received. Maybe it was to a particular wedding. Um, maybe it was to an inauguration. Maybe even a coronation. <laughs> um, what's the greatest invitation you've ever rejected or chose not to attend, I should say? that maybe even in retrospect you regretted it later saying, we missed it, I missed it, I should have gone if I'd had any idea how special that was going to be, I would not have missed that opportunity. But what we have before us is a a very simple, uh, a clear parable that Jesus told to teach some spiritual truths, but it has to do with an invitation, and we can all relate to that. But in this case, it's a very special invitation to a a banquet, a wedding banquet held in honor of the son of a king who is to be married. The story begins with a certain king. He prepares, it tells us in the the parable that Jesus told, he prepares this wedding banquet for his son. It puts emphasis that it was the king who planned this. It was not the son's idea. It it was not his wife's idea, but the king himself... uh, produced the event. He oversaw the arrangements. And he wanted all the important dignitaries in the kingdom to be present. Uh, He sent out wedding announcements. So I've read that in those days, initially there would have been an invitation that it would have been hand-delivered to people, uh, saying you're invited to this this wedding and this feast. So that would have been, the first one would have been kind of like a save-the-date And now, this is a follow-up reminder to come to the the feast that's now been prepared. He sends the servants to those who had been invited to tell them that the feast is ready. And, of course, they should come, but, even to our surprise, they refuse. And their refusal is an insult. And apparently, it is intended to be an insult. An insult to the king's son, an insult to the king himself. And it was an insult even to the servants of the king who carried the message. But at that point, in the opening part of the parable, the the king seems not to react, at least not with anger yet. Instead, he sent other servants out to repeat the invitation. Verse 4 says, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Again, we're told they refused. But this time, their refusal becomes hostile. 
And those who are invited not only merely reject the invitation, they beat up the messengers. In fact, they even kill some of the servants. In response to that, the king sends an army, and he burns their city, and he destroys those who had murdered his servants. Now, after that, he invites others. But before we look at those details, I want you to see some main themes in this parable. First is, the gospel is like a feast. It's like a feast. Now, I've never been to a feast, a real feast, like you see in the movies. The closest I've been to a feast is walking through SNS cafeteria. I mean, that's one of the few places where all the food is in sight, you know. And I never get far past the desserts and the salads, and then I'm, my tray's full. But with other things, you get a, other restaurants, you get a menu with some high-gloss pictures of the way your entree is supposed to look. Uh, but there, it's all before you. Well, the, the gospel is a feast, more than adequate to feed all of your spiritual hunger and thirst. Uh, everything set before you is in rich supply. There's no fear of running out of the food. Uh, and it's a feast, as Isaiah chapter 25 says, a feast of rich food. Rich food. And all of this is due to the work of Jesus Christ. And so Christ richly offers to take you and me into union with himself, to restore us to being members of the family of God, and to clothe us with his garments of his perfect record with God, his obedience, his righteousness. And he invites us to come and partake where he gives us a place in his kingdom, and he will present you without fault before your heavenly Father. So the gospel is an offer of food to the hungry, uh, and it's an offer of joy to those of you who are sad. It's an offer of friendship to those who are lonely. It is an offer of a loving friend to those in need. This is good news. And notice it's unlimited in its invitation. The invitation of the gospel is wide and full and broad and unlimited. The king's servants in the parable said to those who were invited, everything is ready. Come to the banquet. This was not an invitation to your covered dish. We'll provide the meat and A through L's bring the salad and M through Z's bring the dessert. No, everything is there. You're not to bring anything to this. It is all provided. No one will ever be able to say, well, God just did 70% of his part to make me right with him. No, God provides 100%. It is full, this feast that he offers. The Spirit is ready. The Son is ready to pardon. The Father is ready to receive. This grace is ready to assist. The Bible is ready to instruct. And heaven is ready to be your everlasting home if you come to this banquet. And all that's needed is one thing. You must be ready and willing ready and willing. God will be clear of the blood of all souls. No one can hold him responsible if you, if I reject his offer. The gospel always speaks of sinners like us as responsible and accountable beings. The gospel places an open door before us all. So everyone here this morning is invited to this feast. No one is excluded. But despite that, we see also in the parable that the invitation is rejected, and not just by a few, but by many. 
This is similar to other parables told in Matthew and in other places in the gospel that have a lesson for the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about that. There's an application and a specific application to the Jewish people. Their refusal to respond to the Lord Jesus when he came first to his own people. This was a major issue during his earthly ministry. Those to whom the gospel was first preached were Jews, were descendants, blood descendants of Abraham. But those who actually came to the banquet are Gentiles. We read in John chapter 1, He came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what stands out in this parable is the willful refusal of those who are invited. That's what is emphasized here, their willful refusal. It was not that they could not come, it's that they would not come. And they became hostile, and they seized those servants, they mistreated them, and they killed them. Now, if the invited guest responded that way to the servants, think how they felt toward the king. They killed the servants as a demonstration of what they would do if the king was in their reach, if they could have put their hands on him. They hated him. And that's what's shown here by the way they mistreat the servants. Well, we see this. We see the fulfillment of this, you might say, in the Old Testament. Uh, with the messengers that took the invitation of God in the Old Testament, the prophets, what did they do to them? Well, with Elijah, hundreds of, during his day, hundreds of God's prophets were slaughtered. The prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah, the prophet, was stoned at the altar. Messenger after messenger was killed that had been sent by God. Then we come to the New Testament and we find the same thing. John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. James was the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death. He would not be the last. He was beheaded. The rest of the apostles, best we know, with the exception of the disciple John, all died as martyrs. That's how the religious leaders in Jesus' day responded to the invitation. And so in Matthew chapter 23, the very next chapter, as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Not willing. That's what he said. It wasn't an issue of knowledge. It wasn't an issue of, of a lack of invitation. It was that they were unwilling. Some who are invited to the gospel banquet, to the wedding feast, don't openly express their hatred of the king, of the one who invites them. They just make up excuses. And so in verse 5, the parable says that some, one went to his field, another to his business. We have a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke that's very similar, though not identical, and expounds on that. And, and you have a whole list there of one man says, well, I, I have a new wife. I just got married. I, I can't accept the invitation. Uh, you, have, you have a list of flimsy excuses. That's what they are. And we come up with the same today. Uh, there's no reason why either of these should wait until the man for his field. What's going to happen to a field? Do you have to look after a field that has that much importance that it can't wait? Or is your business so critical 
that you can't wait until after accepting the invitation to the banquet to go back and tend to it? Many who reject the gospel invitation today have flimsy excuses, and that may be true of you. They say they're too busy for spiritual things. They say they have work or business or children or other concerns, and they feel that their soul is in prison. And so people today will say, well, when I get married, I'll serve Christ, or when I get out of school, I'll serve Christ, or when our children leave the home and we're empty nesters, then we'll serve Christ. I can't and I don't know how many people have said this to me, and I believe it's well-intentioned, but I'm not quite sure what to make of it. They say, well, late in life, I plan to do some mission service. Okay, you know, we'll see how things are late in life for you, or later in life, or I'll, I'll respond at, at, at other times. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher of the 1800s, told of a rich ship owner who was visited by a godly man, and this Christian man asked this owner, Sir, what is the state of your soul? And the merchant replied, Soul? I have no time to take care of my soul. I have enough to do just taking care of my ships. But Spurgeon said he wasn't too busy to die, which he did about a week later. James Boyce, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church before he died of cancer a number of years ago, he wrote about this. He said, There are thousands, millions of people who hear the gospel and yet derive no benefit whatever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday and year after year and do not believe so that their souls are saved. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no attraction in it. It is not as though they hate it or believe it is not true. They just do not receive it into their hearts. They like other things better. Their hobbies, their interests, their things, their money, their family, their business, their pleasures. All of those are far more interesting to them. It is an awful state to be in, but it is also awfully common. Will you search your heart this morning and take heed that it is not true with you? Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. And he finally said, crowds will find themselves in hell not because they hated God, but because they paid no attention to the truth. They die because of neglect. That's the culture of our day. It's indifference. If you uh, look at history, if you look at what's happening in the world today, where there is persecution of Christians, there typically is some prevailing ideology. Maybe it's Islamic, maybe it's a dictatorial government, maybe it's communism, but there's some ideology that is in power. Those are the ones that persecute Christians. Like two weeks ago today, when Al-Qaeda burst into that Catholic church in Baghdad, first thing they did in front of the kids was kill the priest, and then before it was over, 37 people were dead. Y'all read about that? I'm amazed how little coverage has gotten on the, on, on the news. But uh, a direct attack, claim responsible for on, on a Christian church during worship, men, women, and children, uh, all murdered. Now, that's where there's an ideology. In America where you have secularism, which is the prevailing notion, which is, well, there may be a God. If there is a God, at least he's not in, he or she or whatever it is, is not involved. It's not relative to us. So that's secularism. The problem with secularism, it's not so much as persecution, it's indifference. Who cares? Each his own. Maybe true, maybe not. Doesn't really matter. I've got things to do. You know, so that's, that's what we live in our day right now, 2010, in Macon, in the United States, is more of an indifferent attitude. 
And so we have to be careful because if you fit that pattern, it provokes the wrath of the king. Now, those who accept the invitation, the second half of the parable is a, is, is, is a much brighter note. It tells of those who did come. After the first ones rejected it, the king sends out his army. Then he resends out his servants and says, go to the, verse 9, go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So now the king invites to the royal city all the people in the surrounding countryside to come to the feast at the wedding hall. This time, those who are invited do come. They make the choice to come. They come from far and near. It tells us the good and the bad come. And they fill the places that were left vacant by those who would not respond to the invitation. People from all walks of life. Now, this is extraordinary. When you think how the king of the universe today invites all types of people to himself, it doesn't matter your background, your age, your language, your economic status, whether you're rich or poor, literate, illiterate, race, the invitation goes out. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians described it this way. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God honors himself by inviting and receiving a motley crew. This is not the refined crowd that responds. God is honored here. I read of a man a number of years ago who was a professional gambler. He was converted as an adult. He had very little church background from his childhood, and as an adult he had no church background. He was truly converted, so he decided he would go to church, but like many new Christians, he felt very intimidated. He felt very much like, I'm bad, other people are good, that kind of thing. So he attended a church that he chose, which ended up being pastored by Ray Stedman out in California. Ray Stedman wrote a number of books years ago that some of you read. And that particular day, uh, Pastor Stedman, as part of his sermon or before it, read from the passage in Corinthians where it says, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor liars, nor murderers, and this whole list of things, don't be deceived, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then the following verse says, But such were some of you, but you were saved, you were washed, you were cleansed. (laughs) Well, Pastor Stedman read that list off, from Corinthians and said, by the way, I want to ask you, any of you here that fit those categories before you were a believer, will you stand? And so as he read the list, people stood up, and this guy who was all intimidated in the pew leaned back and went, now this is my kind of church. (laughs) It's our kind of church. That's who's invited now. The king sends sends out the invitation to anyone who will come. I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon again. Spurgeon had a ministry of about 50 years. He died, I believe, when he was 57. Wait, that doesn't fit right. He didn't start preaching when he was 7. He started preaching when he was 14, so you do the math. Anyway, he, uh, 
He preached seven times on this parable. During that ministry, he came back seven times and, and would preach on this. And here's what he said about those who responded to the invitation. The persons who came to the wedding were more grateful than the first who were invited. The richer people had a good dinner every day. Those farmers could always kill a fat sheep, and those merchants could always buy a calf. Thank you for nothing, they would have said to the king if they had accepted his invitation. But these poor beggars picked off the streets. They welcomed the feast. They were thankful for such a feast. The joy that day was much more expressed than it would have been had others come. Those ladies and gentlemen who were first invited, if they had come to the wedding, would have seated themselves there in a very stiff and proper manner. But not these beggars. They make a merry clatter. They are not muzzled by propriety. They are glad at the sight of every dish. This occasion became more famous than it would otherwise have been. If the feast had gone on as usual, it would have been only one among many such things. But now this royal banquet was the only one of its kind, unique, unparalleled, to gather in poor men off the streets, bad men and good men, to the wedding of the crown prince. This was a new thing under the sun. Everybody talked of it. There were songs made about it. And these were sung in the king's honor where none honored kings before. Dear friends, when the Lord saved some of us by his grace, it was no common event. When he brought us great sinners to his feet and washed us and clothed us and fed us and made us his own, it was a wonder to be talked of forever and ever. We will never leave off praising his name through eternity. Look at also, I want to see the man without a garment. Toward the end of the parable, it tells us as the guest, the king's servants welcome the guests, the people that enter the palace. The king comes in and there is a guest there who does not have on the wedding garments. Now from what I read this week, uh, it, was, it was normal for the, the host to provide garments for the wedding guest so that no one would be a respecter of persons. What is the wedding garment that this man lacks? It is the righteousness of Christ. It is coming, it is coming to the feast, trying to work your way there, trying to bring your own righteousness, uh, trying to be there and be accepted because of what you have done. If we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, though that, that his perfection, his obedience to God's law is imputed to us on the cross, and when we have faith in that, then God sees us with Christ's record. Then he accepts us, not because of anything we can do or haven't done, but because of what Christ has done. That's what it means to be clothed in his righteousness. This is a strong warning that false believers will be exposed and will be condemned. In verse 11, it tells us how this man asked how this fellow had come to be there without the wedding garments. And then it says that he's speechless. There have been and there will always be deceivers and hypocrites in the church. In a crowd this size, there are bound to be those of us that may say we are Christians that really aren't. Um, only God knows hearts. It's hard about, harder for us to even know our own hearts. But we go off what one another says. As a pastor, as an elder in this church, I'm one of those who receives new members. We ask people about their profession of faith in Christ and do they have faith in Christ and what do they understand the gospel to be? 
and so forth, and we go off what people say. And some people can verbalize that very clearly. They're very articulate. Others, not very well at all. And so we have to make a judgment call at times. Does this person understand? Is there faith in Christ from what they say? Uh, And we'll be the first to say, I'd be the first to say, we can't read other people's hearts. We go off what their profession of faith is. But God does know our hearts. And in this case, the man who thought that he was part of the crowd really was not. The eye of God does not make mistakes. And note the response. It says the man was speechless. He had no, no answer. He could say nothing. Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many, many years. He had a long ministry there on the radio. He was the radio preacher who led D. James Kennedy to Christ um, in, his, uh, in his 20s, when D. James was in his 20s. And he developed a way of presenting the gospel that many of you have heard, though you may not know it came from him. When he was speaking to a person uh, and he was not sure whether the person he was speaking to was a Christian or not, he would ask, suppose you should die tonight and appear before God in heaven and God should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? Now, most of you here in this church have heard that question from Evangelism Explosion. Well, Dr. Barnhouse used that because he had learned that, from his own experience, that there are typically three answers, one of three answers that a person could give. Many would answer that question by citing their good works, something they had done. And the person may respond back to the question, why should God let you into heaven? They may say, well, I'd say I've done the best I can, or I've tried to live by the golden rule, or I've never done anything particularly bad. And he would point out, Dr. Barnhouse would point out, well, you're appealing to your own record. If, if you think that's going to make you right before God, you are, you're trying to be made right with God based on what you have done. But the Bible tells us that our record is what got us into trouble in the first place and that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, it says in Romans 3. Now, second answer, the second group of people he found would respond, as one particular woman did, when he asked, uh, what would you say to God if he were to say, what right do you have to come into my heaven? And she responded, I would not have a thing to say. In other words, her answer was, I'd be speechless, like the fellow in the parable. And Barnhouse pointed out that's what Romans says. Her mouth would be silenced and she would be held accountable to God. Now, Jesus says that will be the case of all when God actually does ask the question. If this life, we may get by with our delusion that our record is pretty good, but if we're depending on that, we'll have nothing to say. The third answer, which is the only acceptable answer, if God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, would be, I have no answer, none at all, so far as I myself is concerned, but Jesus died for me. And he has given me the covering, the clothing of his righteousness. And it's only in that alone that I dare stand before you. I come at your invitation and in that clothing. That's the invitation. It's not just to come to the banquet, the full uh, explanation of the gospel. It's to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's to see that you and I have a problem, two problems, sin and death. Because we're all sinners, God must punish sin and the punishment is death. 
And there's nothing we can do to, to wipe out those two problems. But thankfully, God sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who always did those things that were pleasing to his father, who allowed himself to be crucified, to be put on a Roman cross, where God placed our sin on him and punished him in our place. He died, he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And he showed that he was victorious over sin and death. And now he's told his disciples to go into all the world and tell people what God has done and that the way we receive this now, the way we receive this invitation is by faith to believe and to accept it into our hearts and to trust in what he's done. Have you done that? At the first of the sermon, I ask you, have you ever had an invitation that you did not accept that you later regretted not accepting? And you said, oh, man, I wish I'd gone. I wish we'd gone to that. If I'd known it was going to be that good, I would have made a point to be there. Well, it's not too late. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter your stage of life. It doesn't matter. Why do I say that so confidently? Because God has you here. And once again, the king's invitation is going out to receive the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're a king who knows all, and you're not whimsical, you're not capricious, you don't change, you don't die, you don't go away for a year or two and come back. Our lives, our thoughts, our hearts, our consciences are laid bare before you. May we have be those who have accepted the invitation, the offer, the free offer of the gospel, and may our trust be in Christ and him only and not in ourselves. And in his name we pray. Amen. Bob Coughlin took a prayer from the Puritan collection of prayers called Valley of Vision, and he put it to music, and we sang it a couple of months ago, but we're going to sing it now as a prayer at the end of the service. Let me invite you to stand and let's sing our song.